somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. So if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Three of you think that? Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. We've been giving away these blue Bibles for many years now. I love seeing uh, someone coming in that's all tattered up and, and uh, you know that that person's been meeting with Jesus. And so, hey, I want you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the Scriptures, you can start in the right and turn left and you'll find it much faster. Or you can go two-thirds of the way through and you'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're going to be in John chapter 15 starting in verse 1. And then if you're part of a small group, I want you to make the habit of grabbing a, uh, your sermon questions uh, as you come in the door. Maybe that will help take some notes on uh, during the sermon that will help on um, during the week's discussion. And so how we do small groups around here is they're uh, sermon-based and relationally Driven, and we haven't been in small groups for a couple years with, because uh, we do them in homes, and we've we've kind of taken a break, but we're we're back in homes, and the beautiful thing about that is you don't have to uh, be on the in crowd to end up in somebody's home, and so we love what's happening. This past week, home groups launched from uh, from Lompoc to San Inez. There's hundreds of people meeting, and uh, we're so thankful for that. And they go through the sermon, and so you don't have to be an armchair theologian or a Bible baby to contribute. You are an expert on whatever you've experienced. So if you go to a, a restaurant one time, you've experienced that restaurant and you can pontificate on the wait staff and the environment and the food quality and the price points enough to give a very lengthy Yelp review. And, uh, and so just like that, if you've experienced the sermon, you hear the story, the text, you have something to contribute. And that's the beautiful thing about how we do that around here. You got a couple more weeks to jump into a group if you have been um, thinking about it. So that's my uh, shameless plug or some would call pastoral counsel. Amen. And so uh, I encourage you to be a part of that. Look at chapter 15 starting in verse 1 of John. It says this, I am the true vine. You're going to want to underline that put an asterisk beside it. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. I want you to circle uh, father in that moment. I don't want you to forget about that title and that role in the context of this passage. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And the, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branch, branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so to prove to be my disciples. You want to underline that. Bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you can keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Be reminded of the purpose of all that I've said. It is for that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Or in other words, this is for your good. This is for your joy. And he says in verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These I command you so that you will love one another. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace that you would help us. You would maybe trouble us and challenge us, but all of it would be for our good, that it, your joy may be in us and our joy may be full and that we may see you as a good father who's concerned for his kids. And we ask that everything we say and do will bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. How have you ever been guilty of uh, thinking that you knew a particular story or let's say a news story because you read the headline? How many of you know that most oftentimes what we do now is we read the headlines? Remember how you said uh, that one time you're like, I was reading this uh, news story the other day. And what you really meant was I caught the headlines. And then you were at dinner with somebody and you begin to tell them about this particular headline. And you tried to pawn it off as the entire story. But midway through, you realized there were more facts to the story than you realized. And maybe what you first thought wasn't what you should have thought. And you got the story completely wrong. 
No, it's, it's never happened to you, only, only to me, friends. And so you, you get around the dinner table and you realize that, uh, that maybe I should have uh, seen the whole context. Maybe I should have read some more details and then the details added to the facts and, and, and I shouldn't have just skimmed through it and saw and gravitated towards my preference or my bias, which we tend to do. How many of you gravitate towards your preferences? Amen. Yeah, how many of you gravitate towards what you like? All of us, amen. And so we can do that. We can, we can kind of skim through, and then if we're not careful, or maybe what even troubles us, and, and there are uh, full algorithms written in order that we, as we scan through the bottomless pit that is the interwebs, that our attention will gravitate, maybe not to our preferences or to our likes, but, but actually to what troubles us, what makes us nervous. What, and, and yet, in passages, like this let's be honest we can treat the bible sometimes like those headlines and those stories and the interwebs that we scan through hey i'm just as guilty as you are and i'm the pastor and sometimes we can scan through these things and let's be honest uh, maybe the the subheading that's there how many of you have subheadings in your bible here how many of you the start of this passage says i am the true vine you have your Bible with you, even on the Bible app, it should give you a subtitle. And so sometimes what we do is we read the Bible in sections. We read it from heading to heading and we go, this is this section. And now I've completed that. Or I've read, how many of you know that the Bible was not written with chapter and verse? Can I, the Bible didn't have chapter and verse in it. Amen. You're, you're with me. You're following. Uh, the Bible, the original version, I know this is hard to believe, it was not written in Shakespeare. Okay? It, 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 and it wasn't the thou's and those and uh, thou shouts. And uh, so that was, it was actually written in uh Hebrew and Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in Greek and different forms of Greek, and they were written as letters or even diaries, and, and, and sometimes they're written to one another, and we get the, uh, the benefit of, of going through our loved one's stuff and reading what they wrote to one another, and we begin to learn from that. Although the scriptures aren't written to us, we can learn from them, Amen. I mean, they're written to us in some sort of way, but even Luke writes to his friend Theophilus, loved of God. One book is written to the Corinthians. One book is written to the Thessalonians. Uh, and some books are written to those who are in Rome, and yet it wasn't specifically addressed to you, but yet you can learn from them and see uh, what God has done through the people of God, through the writings of God, that we might have a total picture of God, are you with me? This is how the scriptures work. So we, so we read them. We don't believe this book. I was having this conversation, so this wasn't in the first service, but I felt it was uh, uh, important as I was having a conversation in the courtyard. This is different than other religious books. It didn't just fall from the sky or someone wasn't just wandering around looking for God in upstate New York and found a iPad, you know, a tablet or whatever, uh, which, you, you know, they, it wasn't that they were looking for God. It was that God worked through the people of God. And you actually see the handprints of people on this book. And how many, of you know, it's a complicated book. <laughs> 
It's a complicated book. It's actually not just one book. It's 66 books, like a library put together, and it's a complicated book. C.S. Lewis said you could have made something up that would be more simple, right? And when you look at the made-up religions of the world, if you were to read the writings of L. Ron Hubbard, you would go, what? You did, see, you could make something up more simple. Yet we read this and we read this one particular person. Sometimes we get caught up and we say, the Bible says, the Bible says. How many of you grew up with someone saying, listen, friend, the Bible says, right, that cleanliness is next to godliness, right? And it's not in there. Anyways, or, or the Bible says that God works in mysterious ways. And you know, the Bible doesn't say that. How many of you, uh, you know, the Bible says that you can say anything you want to about anybody as long as you say bless their heart at the end of it? It's, it's not in there, right? And, and so uh, what we should say is John wrote for us, left for us things about the person of Jesus, and what we talked about last week is it, it, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, he looks at his disciples, and I bet John writes this down so you'll be confident in what he writes. He says, the Holy Spirit, the helper will come, and he will remind you all the things that I've taught you. See, John was a young man when this particular passage happened. And, and what's happened is this, this uh, wild set of events that, that kind of zoom in on the last week and now the last hours of Jesus' Jesus's life. See, we've been in this book for, I don't know, like 27 years or something now is what it feels like. And, and yet if you were in the first part of John, we would take large sections of John and you would, you would realize that Jesus was going through large periods of time from this festival to this festival or, or this period of time, uh, then you would see six months later. And, but what we've been reading over the last several weeks are la actually the last few hours before Jesus is betrayed and crucified. And so John actually goes from the macro and he zooms in on the micro, the very details. And this particular passage is written not just with the subheading that lets you section it off from the rest of what he says. It's actually in a monologue and a dialogue between him and the disciples over one particular meal. And let's be honest, there's a lot of things that can get said over an evening out at Leonardo's, right? Yeah, or S.Y. Kitchen or Nella or wherever your favorite place to eat. You can have a lot of things. And let's just be honest. These are the places around your meal, around your dinner table. That's where some of these conversations should be had. Amen. See, I think one of the things we've lost the art in our culture is we've said, don't bring that up at the dinner table right? We don't talk about that. Don't ruin dinner for the sake of truth and conversation, right? Because meals are way more important. Anyways, uh, you're with me. <laughs> and, and, and yet, let's be honest, uh, the ethic of generations before us was we don't talk about religion or politics at the dinner table. And actually, this might be the best place to have a conversation about religion and politics around a meal with some friends. Somebody say amen. That. Oh, that's good practical Bible preaching. Thank you, Pastor. 
Pastor Sam. Amen. You ought to have the. And what we see is Jesus having some difficult conversations in the last meal. This is his last supper. This is before everything. And yet he chooses this particular moment. See, he's, he's had people prepare a room for the disciples. He gives them an invite only, and it's already set up. And, and they come into this upper room where they see this meal prepared. And when they get to the door, they find something stunning to them that their leader, their CEO, the president of the corporation, the one they've been following, this rabbi teacher, this miracle worker is wearing a robe and an apron. And he's, and he's going to wash the disciples' feet. See, I, I mean, you can understand this, California. You've been walking around in flip-flops, right? And, and, and anytime Mark Thompson comes off his ranch into my office with his dirty flip-flops, I'm going, hey, bro, really? Come on, you're going to track that in here. And, uh, and yet, uh, here, here's the, the, the thing that would be the problem is it, they were having a meal, but it wouldn't be like how we're eating a meal, and it wouldn't be Leonardo da Vinci's last supper. I don't care what Tom Hanks says. It's wrong, okay? And uh, that's a joke, you'll get it later. And, and yet, uh, this picture of them sitting upright at a table in this medieval-like uh, time setting would not be accurate. They were in the Middle East, and this had a different type of culture, and they actually would have been reclining at a low table, laying on cushions on their side, laying on one, and they would have an etiquette about how they would lay around the table, because even though it is a privilege to have sandy toes here in California, amen, I remind my children of that. that and when they complain about sand, I go, your dad didn't get to grow up with sand in my toes. Okay? So you thank the good Lord that you live on the central coast. Amen? Some of you need to stop thinking about Texas and be reminded that you live on... <laughs> central coast okay and, and and it is a privilege and you are blessed and, and yet they lived in this coastal region wearing flip-flops and sandals and they come in and they're going to recline next to one another at this low table and that and their feet are going to be in the way of one another so w someone has to draw straws and get the lowly task of washing everyone's feet and it's usually not the president and ceo of the corporation amen you know what it's like to be a manager. You're a manager, and you don't clean toilets unless you think someone's going to catch you doing it, so they think you're humble, right? Anyways, uh, right? Like, like, you don't do that. You find someone else to do the dirty work unless someone, now because of this example, you're like, I'm Christian. I do the lowly work like twice a year. Uh, but Jesus is the person who, who actually comes in and turns the world upside down because not only is he president and CEO, miracle worker in this particular setting, he's actually king and lord of the universe the creator and this moment this is what sometimes we'll read the passage and go wash feet like jesus washes feet no you need to be reminded jesus washed feet that needs to stick first it needs to go beyond what you should do it should be beholding what he has done see that will change who you are when you see something like that you won't have to conjure up the ability to go out and do things for others. You'll behold who he is, and that will fundamentally change you. Somebody say amen to that. So when you behold that type of servanthood, you go, that's different. I've never seen anything like that. He washes their feet, and one of those he's going to wash their feet is the one who's going to betray him on that particular night. 
He sits around the mill with his friends and you see him visibly frustrated. He's getting short. He, he's flustered. And then they go, what's wrong with you, Jesus? And he goes, one of you, you're going to betray me tonight. And they're looking around. Could it be I? And I love that, that question. All of them realize they have the capability to do it. All of them have to ask the question. It couldn't be me. Couldn't be I. And yet he looks across the table at Judas Iscariot who will betray him, fulfilling a prophecy from the Psalms that the one who's eaten his bread will actually betray him, a friend of his. Someone's been in his home. Like, think about how that feels. Man, they were in my, someone does you dirty, a, 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 a wrong business. You go, man, they've been in my home. They've shared a meal with me. I mean, I thought we were friends. Think about how you think about it. And yet the creator of the universe, God becomes a man and allows himself to experience the same hurts and the same woes that you and I feel. And he looks across at Judas and we've never been betrayed like this. We've never been called out like this. We've never had this happen to us as bad as you've gotten it. You've not been betrayed an innocent man in the middle of the night in order that this conviction will result in your execution. And yet he looks him in the eyes and goes, hey, what you've set out to do, Judas, go do quickly. He gets up and leaves. And then he begins to share with his friends. It's like, now that we got that guy out of the room, let me share. And that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Not just one subheading, not just one section. Now this is apart from this. It's all one story, one context where he's going to say, listen, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Think about that statement alone, what Jesus is saying. And this is what separates us from, you know, everybody's got a Jesus. Everybody's got a version of Jesus. Like, like the Mormons have a Jesus. The Catholics have a Jesus. The, the, uh, uh, those who claim Islam, they have a Jesus. And it, it, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. It matters who Jesus actually is. Is he who he said that he is? And do you believe that he is who he says that he is. Because this is the thing. I was, someone was asking me in the courtyard today, what, what separates churches? What's the decisive thing? Why are there so many churches? And see, there's some open-handed issues, and then there's some very close-handed issues. And one of those things is what, uh, who is Jesus and what do the scriptures say? So we say this thing, uh, the, the saying in Latin is solo scripto and, 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 and solo uh, Chris, uh, Chris, I'm not even going to try to say it now. Right, right? Uh, Christola or, or Christ. Uh, in, or, or in other words, in Christ alone, in Scripture alone. That's why we start, maybe you didn't realize uh, that we're saying very similar things when we say the Bible is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. And we believe it's all about Jesus. See, so you believe in Scripture alone and in Christ alone. And see, when we, if we don't get those right, that's, those are the things we divide over, not whether we sh what color the, the carpet should be. That's why we went with tile, you know? 
And, and so we don't divide over open-handed preferential things. We divide over things that are of the utmost importance, which is who is Jesus and what do these scriptures say? These people who actually wrote them down, that saw him, that who were with him. See, John's uh, older now when he wrote this, but he's in, he's in, these moments are so impressionable to him that he remembers them in detail and he writes them as an older Man, and, and in this particular time, all of these, uh, these documents were written within a generation of Jesus' life. They were all written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Bible does not reference the destruction of the temple because they had all, all of these documents had been written within 40 years of the time of Christ. And so they would write these documents down. And John was a young man, now an old man. And yet, let's be honest, old is relative to uh, when he wrote this. He would have been maybe in his early 50s, late 60s. And in that time, old, right? Sorry, it's just what they would have considered. And some of you are like, let's go back to the time of Jesus. Some of you would be dead, right? Uh, <laughs> That was really funny in the first service. Anyways, and, uh, and, and so, yet yeah, he's an older man when he writes it because of the life expectancy here. He's an older man writing this to us, and he wants us to see the totality of the scriptures. And he writes down in this, this time where he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. And you know, most people believe in God, but they have some ethereal version of God. And what he says is, no, not, not just God, believe in me. So this isn't about you just having a God or a deity or some sense of spirituality. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And he's even saying to those who are monotheistic, this Jewish culture who believes in Yahweh, the creator God. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And if he's not God himself, he's asking them to break the first command, which is to have no other gods before him. So this nonsense that Jesus never claimed to be God, you've never read the words of Jesus. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. My, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If he'd have been on the Joe Rogan podcast, he would have said, he would have said many dimensions, you know. That didn't go over in either service. Uh, some of you need to listen to more Joe Rogan. Anyways, and, and yet... Yeah, he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. What he's saying is, is there, there are spaces and places that you cannot believe and you cannot be, even begin to imagine. The Old Testament says this, that, that is not, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man what God has in store. What he's saying is there's space. There's a place. He's looking, he said, there's room for everyone. That doesn't mean everyone will choose to follow and come into his house. There's a complete distinction. I mean, some of you need to hear that. When people say that, that, that Christianity is exclusive, it is exclusive. It's the most exclusive thing on the planet, but it's also the most inclusive thing on the planet. It's the most inclusive and exclusive thing. What he's saying by inclusive, I got room for everyone. Peter will say it's not God's will that anyone should perish that all should come into faith all like if someone on the ark get on the boat get on the ark there's room for everyone yet some people will not choose and he will not force them but here's the exclusive part jesus is the only way 
He's the only one who made a way. He says, if anyone who believes, believes in what? Him would have everlasting life. It's inclusive, friend. But the reality is, is there is only one way. And that's what he begins to say in chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Thomas, the literal one, goes, okay, that's fine. Show us the way. Because, because no, 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 listen, I am the way. Philip speaks up and says, listen, no, yeah, we love you and everything, Jesus, you know, J-Dog, but uh, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. I mean, could you imagine that? And it's, and, and it's easy for us sometimes to like judge the disciples when they say things like that, but yet we sit over and go, go just give us a sign, you know, it'll be enough. You know? Like, I know you did the whole raising from the dead thing and changing all of known history, but could you give me a little more? You know? Show, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us, Philip says. And Jesus looks at him. Can you imagine him? He, oh, across the dinner table, he says this to him, and he looks at him, like, and, and everyone's like, oh, I wonder how this is going to go, right? And Jesus looks back at Philip and goes, listen, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to show you? How, how many things? Just believe on the account. Don't you realize, Philip, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And yet, he continues on, even on the conversation at the dinner table. He, 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 he's not afraid of the controversy. He's not afraid to speak the truth in love. He's not, he's not afraid to risk the meal for the sake of truth, but he does it in a loving way and brings Thomas along, brings Philip along. And then he says this, it's in the same conversation. Right after this, he says, okay, let's get up and go from here. And they move from the upper room to the courtyard and they make themselves out maybe by a fire pit in the garden of Gethsemane. And they go out and he begins to say this, maybe walking through the garden, he goes, I am the true vine. And I can imagine John hearing this. I am the true vine. See, John's grown up hearing the stories of the Torah, the Old Testament, if you will. He's heard the stories and how they're complicated, but there seems to be these themes. And all of a sudden, I can imagine that in that moment when Jesus says, I am the vine, it shocks his memory. And he begins to realize, and maybe it was after the fact, maybe it was after the resurrection, he remembers this. But he begins to put it together that Jesus is suggesting that all of the stories I grew up hearing, all the things I grew up as a child, all the, all the storybooks of Adam and Eve and the tree of the, uh, and, 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 and the fall and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and, and, and Solomon, all to this day, the temple, the whole universe revolves around this temple. And Jesus says, I am the true Vine. I bet all of a sudden these stories begin to link up. I want to show you a video. It's a helpful tool to maybe help in five minutes tie all of the scripture together in this particular moment where he says, I am the vine. Then I'll come back and give us some practical takeaways and some things to think about. Check this out. The story of the Bible begins in a garden where God and humans live together. 
And the biblical authors want us to see this garden as a type of temple. The top is the most sacred place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is most intense. And that's where we find the Tree of Life. So, what's this tree all about? Well, it represents God's own life and creative power that is made available to others. In fact, God's first command is that humans eat from all of the trees, including this one. So you're ingesting God's own life. That sounds intense. Yeah, this meal transforms the one who eats it. Or in the words of the story, it leads to eternal life. Okay, but on the way to the tree of life, the humans have to pass by another tree called the tree of knowing good and bad. And God says that eating from this tree will kill you. How does it do that? Well, it represents taking the authority to do what is good in your own eyes. And when humans do that... It leads to broken relationships, violence, and death. And so here's the thing. Both trees look beautiful, but one of them is a false tree of life. And the humans take from this false tree of life. And they're exiled from the garden for good. Which raises the question, can anyone ever get back to the tree of life? Well, later on in the story, we meet a man named Moses, and he encounters God in a desert tree on top of a mountain. Oh, you mean the burning bush, where Moses is told that he's standing on holy ground? Yeah, it's a plant on a mountain radiating with God's life and power, just like the tree of life. And God tells Moses, bring your people up to this mountain so we can form a partnership. And this partnership will force them to make a choice. Will they follow gods of their own making or receive life from the true God? And in this story, they give their allegiance to an idol. And it's just the first of many. The story goes on to show generation after generation choosing gods of their own making. And these idols were usually placed on tall hills like beautiful trees. But they're false trees of life that lead the people into self-destruction, exile, and death. It's like death's grip on us is too strong to resist. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn now to the story of Jesus. He came to announce that God's eternal life was available once again through him. So Jesus thinks of himself as the tree of life. Yes, this is what he meant when he claimed to be the vine that brings God's life into the world. And Jesus invited people to eat from him. Yeah, he was inviting people to trust him and be transformed by his life. But Jesus also exposed how corrupt humans are, how much they love false trees of life. And so Jesus presented people with a new choice between life or death. And this time, they don't just choose death. They also chose to attack the one who sustains all of life. Yes, Jesus is led up to the top of a hill where he dies upon a tree. The cross is the sad and violent result of humanity's desire to do what is good in our own eyes. The tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. Well, it seemed that way. But Jesus said that he was a seed of God's life that would die in the ground, but then grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. So to defeat death, Jesus went through it. And now this new tree of life stands before us all. We can eat from it, but it will mean passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old way of being human to die. So that a new humanity can grow in its place. Yes, Jesus said he is the vine and we are his branches. So not only do you eat from this tree, you're invited to become a part of it. 
helping produce its fruit so that his life and love can spread through us to others. And so the story of the Bible ends in a new garden, which is also a kind of temple, with the tree of life at its center, providing healing and life forever to all who choose to eat from it. Amen. I can imagine John's reaction being in a garden and Jesus suggesting that he's the tree of life. And what that would have done for him, what that would have jarred in him, what he's essentially saying, what he has to realize is there is truth beyond my present reality. See, truth is beyond your reality. What do you mean by that, Pastor Sam? It's like, well, you can have a perspective of what's true, but your perspective is limited, right? You only have a limited amount of information. You only have a a limited perspective. And yet truth is beyond what you can perceive. I I mean, just like the headlines, when you read the headline and you read a little bit of the fact, you're also only getting the perspective of the one who gave you the information. See, truth is beyond your Reality, And this is what Jesus is saying. This is the truth of what he's saying. He's saying you can look around and you can think that this is life, but this is merely existence. And there's a difference. He's looking around. He's saying, you know what actually brings life? Me. You know what actually is the source of joy and fulfillment? Do you know what will actually bring life to you? You going in the way that you should go, in the way you were designed to work. See, let's be honest, there's some parts of this passage that can be kind of troubling, right? What if I pointed you to the grander context because let's be honest when you first read this passage that's why it's so important for you to read I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser like this is in the context of a family this is in the context of a fatherly relationship and this father is caring for the vineyard because if I read this passage and I go to what troubles me or to my preferences, which we have a tendency to do based on our personalities. Maybe in this passage, I'll read what troubles me. Any tree, any branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Or maybe you even go further and you go, wait a second. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and it withers and the branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire. Oh, let's be honest, friends. That can be a troubling verse. And maybe quickly when, you, when I read that to start, you're like, wait a second. And you start looking at your life and you're like, man, there's some things in me that I wish were in me. And I gotta be honest, I don't always produce a lot of fruit, man. Sometimes I'm a jerk to my kids. Sometimes I'm a jerk to my pastor. Or maybe, I, maybe it's, man, sometimes I'm a jerk to my spouse or everyone at work thinks I'm a jerk and I'm the pastor. (laughs) 
And maybe you start going, man, God, how do I have enough? I mean, if I don't have enough fruit, you're gonna cut me like a branch. You're just gonna cast me away and you're gonna burn me up. And all of a sudden, Dante's Inferno, you're starting to have images. And all of a sudden, fear. But maybe you're just reading part of it. You're not getting the whole point. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm making a way where there seems to be no way. I'll send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. He'll guide you. He'll lead you into all truth. I am the vine and you are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. Because you start going, man, I don't know if I've done enough good. Man, he's just going to cut me off. Let's just be honest that sometimes what you think about God is merely your projections from yourself of what you think about God. And they're not based in truth. They're not based in scripture. They're not based on the person of Jesus. You go, man, I could never believe in a God who would be wrathful like that, who would cut and cast away. Man, you are far more wrathful than God. Let's be honest. Like if you were in charge, you would be throwing lightning bolts all the time, right? Man, I can't believe you're driving. Get out of Solvang, you know, right? Go back to LA. Anyway, it's just true. Anyway, right? You, you don't have to pick your kids up on the other side of the valley every day, do you? You're just like, man, you'd just be smiting people, not in a good way. They wouldn't be smitten, they'd be, right? You'd be, like, think about how you cut people off. You say, man, they were my home. Done me dirty. I can't believe they said that. You know what? I'm done. You think about, think about it. They wronged you, they hurt you. You say, I'm never going through that again, and you cut them off. No matter how close the relationship was, and then you project that onto God as if he's quick to anger, as if he's not abounding in love, as if his heart is not that anyone should perish, that everyone should come to the knowledge and saving faith, that he came to the world and the world did not receive him. They rejected him and he died for his own. He allowed himself, the true vine, to be cut down so that he could be planted again. See, our projections of God are not always based in reality. They're only based in our reality. And truth is beyond your reality. Sometimes we go, man, what could I bring God? See, I, my, uh, I got tricked into adopting some puppies recently. And when I say, I didn't say puppy, puppies, Right? It's like we wanted a puppy and now we have puppies. And we were going to adopt these puppies. And man, uh, I, they were like, it's a twofer. We really want them to stay together. I was like, I bet you do because it's 500 more dollars than we were going to pay. Right? I was like, do we get like a two for one, you know, like or a BOGO is one half off, you know? And they're like, no, sorry, it's a full price. It's a thousand dollars, friends. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm a pastor, right? I don't have a thousand bucks just laying around for puppies, right? 
Like in the last service, they were trying to take up an offering, like, let's get them. Like, we're fine, friends. Okay, it's just $1,000 for rescue puppies. I mean, and we're like, man, we're going to do it. But like, we're trying to use it as a teachable moment because we're going to give it for our kids. But we're kind of like going, hey, man, these, like, it's not just like, oh, mom, dad, get them. Like, this costs mom and dad money. Brother, these are expensive. They're $1,000. Some of you are like, we paid $4,500 for our pure breed. Anyways, they're rescues, right? And, and so, like, I'm just, like, trying to use this as a teachable moment for our kids. And, I'm, and here's what my son Judah, uh, man, I, I love his heart. And he's starting to worry about mom and dad, like, being able to afford to buy these fish. So he's like, you know what? I got some money in my room. You're like, what? He's like going in his piggy bank. He's like trying to get like whatever to come out. You know, like I don't need his money. But he's like, hey, dad, I can contribute to this. And like he's starting to get overwhelmed when he hears a thousand dollars. He's looking at what he's got. And he's like, in his mind, it's like a trillion. Remember when like a thousand dollars for you, like some of us, it still feels like a trillion. Like that's, that's a lot of money. Puppies, right? You're like, man, and he's like, and then I realized, like, how did you get a $50 bill? I was like, actually, I might need some of this, right? I'm about to bankrupt the tooth fairy. Where did you, man, grandparents are giving way too much these days, right? Come on. It's crazy. How are we supposed to teach these kids responsibilities dropping 50s to them? Like, come on, right? But, but he, he's going like, man, how do I? How do I pay for this? And here's the reality. See, some of us are convinced that God needs our... He needs you? Do you know you? He doesn't need you. But he wants you. But he loves you. And all your effort, all your good deeds, all your stuff, like, like you're convinced that like when you read this passage, oh, if I don't do enough, I didn't give enough, I didn't, I didn't pray enough, he's just going to cut me off. That's not what it's saying. See, that's your projection. That's not in this passage. Because some of you are like, man, I, man, I got a flat tire this week. Man, I should have gave more to the church. I knew he was going to get it, Right? car broke down like you think he needs anything from you he does not and that's good news he is the vine his father is the vine dresser and you know what the vine dresser the vineyard keeper the vineyard manager is far more concerned with the vine is far more concerned with the fruit. The fruit's not striving to bear. You ever drive past a vineyard? We've drive past so many. You've never driven past one and it's out there like trying to produce fruit. You just drive past one day and there was nothing. And then the next day you're like, man, it's getting close to harvest. It just grows. Why? Because it's plugged in to the source. See, that's the thing. This whole passage starts with, I'm the true vine. Or in other words, I'm the true source of life. Everything else is merely existence. 
You can go try to eat from other trees. You can go try at this false idol. You can try to find things to fill your life with. And like, uh, like a zombie that uh, will, will go into the mouth and out the gut, as Ephesians says, we were once dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked. The walking dead. Dead men walking. Not experiencing life, merely existing. He says, I am the true vine, my father, the vine dresser. We were in sermon prep this past week and we invited a local vineyard owner to come and talk to us about vines. Kind of give us some perspective. And it's interesting to hear him talk about this grape that's really useless for anything else but one purpose. I mean, you ever walked through and like done a tour or, or, or maybe snuck into the vineyard? Like, I'm just going to try one. That's profits you're stealing. Anyways, you're like, you're like, I want to try one. You're like, that's terrible. <laughs> like, that's not like the grapes they sell at Albertsons. Like, that tastes like they're, they're terrible. They need something done to them. This thing that actually, if you don't care for it, will grow wild and choke itself out and it won't be able to produce anything. It actually exists in order to have a vine dresser. See, vines grow chaotically. They grow so much in a week. Like they have to have someone pruning it constantly. The vineyard manager will go through and he'll check a vine and he'll tape it off to see if it, if it doesn't produce fruit. They'll, they'll mark it. And they'll come back two weeks later after it takes so long to get back to that spot and say, is this bearing fruit? Or is this just taking up space? Is it choking out the rest? And then those who do bear fruit, you prune it. And then this vine that wants to go chaotic, you actually train it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but all vineyards seem to have order to them. You ever notice that? Everything seems to be in a line, in a row. All of a sudden, something that wants to go chaotic is put in proper alignment. And this is a difficult thing for the vine. They have to like train it. They have to tie it down and train it to grow in a certain way. Right after Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, this is where life is produced. It's through difficulty. It's through training. It's through shaping. It's through correcting. It's taking the chaos and ordering it. And that's where the life is going to grow. That's how he's going to use this vine analogy. I'm the vine and you are the branches. The reality is some metaphors break down. That's why he begins to show us other things in the passage. What he's essentially going to say, that my life is going to be given for you. And this vine will go into the ground. As another analogy, he says that unless a grain of wheat dies, it remains singular. But if it dies, it goes into the ground and it reproduces itself. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and my and you abide in my love, you'll produce much fruit. See, I find it interesting that John uses this, and, but he starts the whole thing, this whole book. Remember Jesus' first miracle? 
It was at a wedding. And the wine has ran out. And mom's coming up to him like, hey, you better do something. As if maybe he's done this trick for his mom before. Maybe she knew something that no one else did. The wines ran out. Bring him. He goes, mom, it's not my time. Why are you bothering me? And she ignores him, says, just do whatever he tells you to do. He says, go get these barrels that were for cleaning, cleansing, for, for ceremonies of, of, of being ritually clean and pure. They were, they were these barrels that were set aside for that purpose. And he brings them and he turns water into wine. Not only is the vine, not only is he the vine dresser, he's the wine maker. See, the beautiful thing about this analogy and what he says, see, these grapes are useless unless a wine maker gets a hold of them. He takes stuff that would be useless. Right? It's, his, I mean, he, it's like a, a kid who makes a mud pie and he comes over and he's like, look what I made. You're like, that looks like dirt. Let me remind you that Adam means dirt man. And somehow God takes what the Bible describes as we were made a little lower than the angels, but he seats us in heavenly places. He actually takes the broken, the messed up, the seeds, the skins, this thing that wants to go chaotic, this thing that wants to go its own way, this thing that goes awry, and he takes it and he orders it. He trains it in the way it should go for one purpose. Think about, think about wine for a moment. I mean, some of you need to not think about wine as much as you do, but uh, for, for this moment, somebody say amen, <laughs> right? Let's think about what's wine, what's wine good for? Enjoyment. Enjoyment and what? The glory of the winemaker. I mean, think about it. He's swirling around. Ah, this was Santa Rita Hills, right? Location, the vineyard. The evidence of the vineyard is in, evidence of the vineyard keeper is in the bottle. Evidence of the winemaker is in the bottle. And what's it for? Enjoyment and the glory of the winemaker. See, he's making you into something. Something that would be useless unless he got his hands on you. See, that's why he says some will choose not to be in the vine and they'll be cut off. That's the reality of it. They've chosen not to abide. They said their way and their judgment, they don't wanna go in the way they should go. They wanna go chaotic in their own way and like a withered branch. See at the end, the vine maker will take these branches and he'll gather them all up and they'll be burned in the fire. But it will be the choice of those. One theologian says this, in the last day, there will be those that say to God, thy will be done, I'll go your way. And there will be those that God says to them, thy will be done, you go your way. But if we remain in him, here's what will happen. 
He'll produce fruit in your life. And that fruit will be put on display. He'll make something beautiful that when the world bites into your life, they will taste and see that the Lord is good for the glory of the winemaker and the good of those who are willing to come into the Father's house because there's a party and you're invited. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is an invitation You are far more concerned with our spiritual development than we are. This isn't about us paying for it. You've already paid everything. This is about us allowing ourselves to be trained in the way we should go. Not in the chaos that the enemy tries to tempt us in, but we would allow ourselves and our lives to be trained. As children, train them up in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. Like a vine, the Father is concerned with the way we should go. So train us, Lord Jesus. We want to be plugged into you. And as the sap of the Holy Spirit fuels our lives, let our joy be found in you, the source, the tree of life, the true vine. This is what is true. You are life and there is no life apart from you. So let us abide in you, produce fruit in our lives, that the world may taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you and let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you stand to your feet?